Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome to the last session of the day. Those of you who've been here eight hours, uh, I appreciate you sticking around. Um, everyone's probably getting a little tired. We will do our best to keep you entertained with regulatory coherence. Um, I actually think it's a very entertaining subject. Uh, I've spoken to other audiences, though, and I had trouble getting through to them, but we've all put our minds together, and we will do everything we can to, uh, to entertain you with a deep dive on the regulatory coherence negotiations. So my name is Simon Lester, trade policy analyst here at Cato. I'm joined by Alberto Alemano from HEC Paris NYU Law School and Per Altenberg from Sweden's National Board of Trade. We were supposed to have additional panelists, Greg Schaefer from UC Irvine Law School, but unfortunately he got sick and he couldn't make it. The bad news is he has a lot of expertise and uh, you know, we'll, we'll miss having him up here. The good news is we all get to talk longer and you also have more time to, to uh, ask us questions. So you know, start thinking about it now, questions or comments, you will have an opportunity to, uh, to voice them. So I'm going to briefly introduce the topic and then I will turn to my uh, fellow panelists here for more in-depth analysis. As most people here probably know, and we, we've heard about it earlier already, uh, right from the outset of the TTIP negotiations, Many people were saying that dealing with regulatory trade barriers is the major objective of the TTIP. This is the lingering issue that we're finally going to resolve. This is where all the big economic gains will come. They said tariffs are already low. I dispute that. I think they're wrong about that. But regardless, that's what they said. Uh, the TTIP will be all about regulatory trade barriers. So if we get rid of the barriers that could realistically be eliminated, um, the leading economic study tells us it would boost EU GDP by $158 billion per year and US GDP by $53 billion per year. Now over in the other session, they're debating whether those numbers mean anything. We're just going to accept them as is. That's what people say. I was excited to hear about this, this, fo this focus on regulation because this was a topic that I was already puzzling over. I had seen the, the leaked regulatory coherence chapter of the TPP that was, uh, that was put out there in about 2011. And uh, I was trying to, to you know, sort out what it meant. I mean, it just doesn't read like a normal trade agreement text. So I was reading through this thinking, you know, what, what is everybody up to here? What are they trying to do? Uh, I was trying to make sense of it. So I was hoping that the TTIP talks could, could help elaborate this a bit. Now, to some extent, uh, regulatory issues in trade agreements may seem like a strange thing for somebody from Cato to focus on. You know, we are, as everyone I think knows, we are the regulation skeptics. Um, can you really trust us or me to be objective about this? Don't we just want to repeal Obamacare and Social Security and all the rest of it? And the answer to that, of course, is yes. But uh, the discussion of regulation in the TTIP and TPP is more complicated than that. What we have, in a sense, is the international regulation of domestic regulation. Now, for those of you who are regulation skeptics, that might sound kind of awful. It's like regulation squared, um, and it may make people uh, suspicious. Um, what is everybody up to here? Um, on the other hand, you could also see this as perhaps a way to, to make the situation of regulation better. It could serve as a check on domestic regulation, reining it in a bit, approving, improving its effectiveness. But before I jump to any conclusions about what I thought of uh, regulation and TTIP, I wanted to sort it out sort it all out, figure out exactly what everyone was talking about because it was often unclear. Um, one confusing aspect is, is what exactly is covered here? What does everybody mean by non-tariff measures or regulatory trade barriers? These are two of the commonly used terms um, uh, that are used when talking about these things. And studies of the issue are often kind of vague about what they have in mind. They seem overbroad. Uh, they make references to things like tort reform or postal service monopolies that don't seem like they could realistically be dealt with in a, in a trade agreement. So to help me sort it all out, I tried to come up with a, a classification system for all the different things that trade agreements might do with domestic regulation. And I, I see three categories there with some overlap between them. So first, you have regulations that are protectionist in nature, regulations that are intended to discriminate against foreign products or services. Now, this is a real problem, um, but these are already disciplined multilaterally at the WTO. So I'm not sure there's anything else that needs to be done with them in the TTIP. The problem is pretty well solved. There's plenty of cases to look at. Um, there's three recent ones against the US on clove cigarettes, country of origin labeling, and tuna labeling. Uh, you may, and I do, quibble with some of the WTO jurisprudence, but I, I don't think this is something that anybody thinks the TTIP can handle. So it's, it's the second and third categories that I'll talk about that are where the real action is in the TTIP. The second category is the problem of regulatory divergence. So you have agencies in, in two countries regulating the same thing in different ways. And you know, we already talked about this earlier, I think, with the baby rattles. Um, another famous example is 
duplicative crash tests for cars in the United States and Europe. You know, can't we trust the, the, the European, can't the Europeans and Americans trust each other to, to do crash tests on automobiles? I would think yes, although I, I have heard that there are differences, but it didn't seem enough to make me concerned about driving a, a European car. Now here I can imagine that some improvements could be achieved in trade talks or elsewhere, um, but the main impediment is just getting these agencies to, to talk to each other. The EU has some ideas here, and we'll see if they can convince the US, and I think Alberto will focus a lot on that. One problem with this may be that the EU has spent uh, decades internally trying to work out mutual recognition and harmonization, um, and they're trying to take that experience and apply it to a relationship with a trading partner, which is not quite as easy as, as it looks. And then the third category. So the second category is regulatory, regulatory divergence. The third category is whether we can make regulation more effective and more efficient. And in this category, you have things like cost-benefit analysis, uh, of getting proper input from stakeholders. And here, it's the US that's been putting pressure, uh, been pushing harder to, to get something done on this issue. The US has focused a, a lot of its attention on having a notice and comment period for draft regulations. The EU gets input on its regulations, but at an earlier stage, and it doesn't put out a draft. And this has been a big concern of the US. So let me make three general points, and then I'm going to turn it over to the others on the panel to, to go into more depth. So the first point is that some rules in this area, some trade rules, are difficult to classify. So this is going to get a little bit technical, but if you take the, some of the, the sound science rules of the SPS agreement and the no more trade restrictive than necessary requirement of Article 2.2 in the TBT agreement, that's the last time I'll mention WTO agreements, these could be seen both as targeting disguised protectionism or about rate making regulations more effective and efficient. So these categories do overlap a bit, um, and sometimes we don't really know what the, the drafters had in mind with a particular rule. Second point is that there is a, a major difference in the, in the categories in the sense that the first one, regulatory protectionism, lends itself to enforceable obligations and dispute settlement. And, and there's a long history with it at the WTO. We understand how those rules can be enforced. But I'm not sure the other categories can be treated the same way. What kind of institutional structures do you need for regulatory cooperation or for uh, regulatory effectiveness? How do you get agencies to cooperate? How do you make governments regulate better? So the traditional trade agreement rules and institutions may not be that helpful here. So what, what, do we need to, what do we need instead? What do we need to develop? A final point, and this was talked about earlier as well, is that this issue has caused a lot of concern for civil society groups. Many are worried that it will undermine existing regulations, that it will weaken regulation. At the same time, some others are worried it will lead to more regulation um, as U US regulation arises to the EU level. So from what I've seen of the proposals and discussions so far, I tend to think both sides are wrong, and I, I don't think they can both be right. We can't have both more and less regulation. So on these and other questions now, let me, uh, let's, let me invite uh, my fellow panelists to weigh in. Alberto is going to discuss um, the detailed EU proposals on regulatory cooperation. He'll talk about institutional design of the EU regulatory cooperation ideas, and he will address some of the race to the bottom fears. And then Pear will compare the political economy of behind-the-border negotiations with that of traditional market access negotiations. And I think he will tell us a little bit, although I don't know if he can say everything, about the new National Board of Trade uh, report on regulatory conversions issues. So again, uh, if you've got questions, uh, keep, keep track of them, and we should have plenty of time for discussion later. So let me turn it over now to Alberto. Thank you, thank you, Simon, thank you to Cato for the invitation. Um, I'm going to start uh, presenting the International Regulatory Cooperation chapter from uh, my perspective, the perspective of an academic who has been following these discussions since the very beginning, which uh, basically dates back to a bit more than two, two years ago. So in terms of context, as uh, it has been discussed today, the TTIP negotiations have been uh, largely be contested, uh, although with a significant variation across uh, the different European countries. And three major issues uh, have somehow monopolized the public opinion. The issue of transparency during the negotiation, the issue of race to the bottom, the fact that there might be a inherent bias uh, into the current negotiation that might lead to a reduction in protection on both sides of the Atlantic, and the issue of uh, ISDS, or today the ISD, so the new 
way of looking at disputes. The first claim of my talk is that in TTIP there is much more than these three issues, and that's what we should probably focus on. There's a first issue of nature. What's the nature of this agreement? We are really discussing about a new generation uh, trade agreement. Uh, the scope, so what kind of decisions adopted in the US or in Europe will be subject to this new discipline? What is going to be the institutions governing uh, this new way of, of agreeing together, and then issues of political and uh, democratic control, and finally the issue of balance of, of commitments. When we look at the nature of the agreement, I think that today's conversation confirmed the semantic confusion that is somehow uh, characterizing our discussion. Uh, if you take a political economy, geopolitical perspective, these are mega regionals. We talk about big agreements, Taken, taken and adopted or negotiated among different countries in the world within the WTO. If you take a trade perspective, we rather talk about new generation agreements, so agreements that would somehow uh, represent an evolution of the old agreements focusing on trades, uh, many custom duties. And then if you take the regulation perspective, the more administrative law perspective, you will focus on the fact that now the center, at the very center of this agreement, we have forms, new forms of regulatory cooperation. No longer trade negotiators talking one to another, but regulators, people sitting in the agencies discussing with their counterparts on the other side of, of the Atlantic. So let me give you a first definition of what I mean for, for TTIP, uh, at least based on the uh, first the 10 rounds of negotiation that took place over the last two years. I like to define TTIP as a trade agreement because it remains a trade agreement, which is based on a permanent international regulatory cooperation mechanism. So it's a permanent bridge allowing regulators to discuss one to another every single day. They are those who are running the show. And most of their activity, the reason why they talk to another is because there are stakeholders there prompting their activity. So somehow asking them to discuss about the equivalence or the mutual recognition of different standards, or at least committing to discuss one another when proposing new regulations about data protection or emissions or, um, the, or other source of energy. So let me make a step back now here and asking why uh, did we start negotiating TTIP, how we intend to do it, and what TTIP might be from a regulatory uh, perspective. Well, the aim, as you've heard in a much deeper way from Simon, is to eliminate, reduce, or prevent unnecessary behind the borders obstacle to trade. Basically, what we call non-tariff barriers, basically uh, tackling, addressing regulatory divergence. By definition, the way in which we regulate across the world differs. It reflects consumer preferences, it reflects the dynamics of the market, it reflects a myriad of, of, of different factors. But we want according to the initial documents published uh, by both sides, to possibly tackle, and there's a lot of vagueness, and I agree here with, with Simon, there's even more vagueness here than in the WTO, when discussing about unnecessarily burdensome or duplicative or divergent. So it's very important to come up with a possible taxonomy to give uh, a definition of what we mean for regulatory requirements that we do not like. For the time being, we don't have such a clarity. So NTBs represent the very much heart of, of these agreements. But as Simon mentioned, we've been tackling NTBs since the Tokyo round in 1970. So there's very little new uh, when we look at the, at, the, at the aim, at the very aim of, of the objective. But of course, as soon as we look at the how, we realize that TTIP and our conversation on how we tackle non-tariff barriers does not occur in a vacuum, but it rather builds upon the WTO. And in particular, it tries to build upon those procedural modernization requirements that have been embedded in the 2BT and the SPS agreement that were mentioned so many times uh, today. But TTIP negotiations also build upon a bilateral relationship which has been growing over the years, which has led to the conclusion of mutual recognition agreements between the two sides of the Atlantic, agreements on the equivalent, just think about the organic agreement we have, uh, which is pretty much based on mutual recognition, but the overall conclusion from this experiment is that they are not enough. They are not enough if we want to achieve our goal, which is to reduce uh, these uh, non-tariff barriers, assuming that this is what we really need uh, in order to improve our international trade relation. So that's exactly where TTIP, or the TTIP negotiations, uh, keep in. They kick in as an attempt to possibly develop new regulatory cooperation mechanisms 
uh, enabling the two sides to discuss when regulating or when revising their different regulations. So what do we intend to do? The big idea, the intuition behind the regulatory chapter is that we should start cooperating on the hows and not on the what's of regulation. Instead of discussing sector by sector, let's try to make a step back and trying to see how we come up with a new regulation. What kind of analytical methodologies do we follow? What kind of steps do we follow? Because the idea is that if we're going to converge around a set of processes, procedures, well, we're going to increase our likelihood to come up with similar outcome. I think it's pretty intuitive as an idea. We're going to follow the same steps. The procedure is going to be transparent. We're going to be looking at how you came up with such a conclusion. For the time being, it's not possible to do so. Our constitutional and administrative systems are quite different. So comparison uh, may uh, be particularly difficult. So this is basically uh, the background you, you might need to know when addressing what we call the horizontal regulatory chapter. This is supposedly one of the 24 chapters making up TDIP. Uh, we don't have a US proposal uh, on the table. At least it does not mean disclosed. So all what I will be saying from now on will rely upon the European proposal, which has been published already twice. There has been a first proposal in February, and there has been a revised proposal uh, which has been uh, shared uh, in uh, May. This chapter tried to do what I just told you, trying to define procedures that will enable the two parts to compare what they're doing when coming up with new regulations or when revising what they already have. So what's the scope? Which are going to be the legislative or regulatory acts in the US subject to this discipline? The answer coming from the European proposal is quite open. All measures of general application affecting goods and services. So it's extremely open, as open as to encompass also domestic measures, meaning measures adopted at the state level in the US or by the member states in the European Union. And what about the discipline? What, what, what kind of rules we're going to apply to these procedures? We're going to have two major sections. We have the good regulatory practices, and then we are going to have the regulatory cooperation mechanism. Why is it important to distinguish between the two? Because the first part, the good regulatory practices that boil down into impact assessment consultation procedures, they're going to apply to all regulatory acts at central level, meaning that the European Union is already binding, taking a commitment to all its rules, regardless of whether they're going to have a significant impact on trade. The second part, the regulatory exchanges, so this new permanent mechanism, is going to apply to only those regulations which have an impact on, on trade. Let's go a bit more into detail on what we mean for good regulatory practices. Well, first of all, the two sides would commit to be even more transparent than today. This is a WTO plus obligation. And to establish an early warning mechanism. As soon as an idea for a rule, for a regulation, meaning for a statute, should pop out, there should be a commitment taken by the US and Europe to actually tell the counterpart that they're about to do so and possibly allow a dialogue, a consultation, and to engage into an impact assessment, trying to assess prospectively which might be the impact of that proposal on the economy and on the European side. The methodology is, is a bit broader. It looks also at the environmental impact. It looks also at social uh, impact. So the whole idea is to agree on best practices that should be applied to our procedures. And here you are. The beauty contest is open. And part of the difficulty on the regulatory chapter, as already hinted at by Simon, is what kind of procedures we're going to be committing to when doing and when preparing our regulation. Should we follow notice and comment? Should we follow the consultation process the European Union has been using, which starts very early, but it doesn't lead to a, a comment on the draft proposals? These are open questions. And the beauty context is part of the dynamic of, of the current negotiations. But the bottom line is that in identifying those procedures that both parties will follow when proposing and adopting new legislation and regulations, we should strike a balance between the need for procedural coordination and regulatory autonomy. And we need to choose those procedures, existing procedures, that better allow us to achieve our goals which is to enhance comparability and to allow a dialogue between the regulators. While it is true that 
neither the US nor the European Union intend to change their constitutions, they intend to change their administrative procedure act in order to encompass these procedures, it is also true that the European Union is tweaking a little bit, is changing a little bit the way in which is doing consultation, the way in which is doing impact assessment. And this is part of the better regulation agenda that has been published in May of this year, which is pretty much central and plays an important role in the current negotiation. What about the second component of the regulatory discipline? Well, this is the most interesting part, because this is going to be a permanent mechanism that the US and Europe are going to establish in order to allow the regulators to talk one to another. So it's a mode of voluntary cooperation based on a common interest. What's the idea here? The idea is the following. To foresee every year a set of policy areas that should allow to a request for regulatory exchanges. And stakeholders, meaning industry groups, who believe that the standard they are subject to when exporting should be uh, eased or should be rendered compatible to the one existing in their host country, in their origin, in country of origin, will ask the regulators to meet and discuss. So if uh, a particular industry, it might be uh, the automotive industry, believes that there is a case for pushing for an avoidance of duplication, it should allow, it should prompt the regulators to sit and discuss about the different standards on auto parts should be judged equivalent or not. In this regulatory exchange is a very interesting exercise because it's something that has never been done in such a way. It will promote mutual understanding. Regulators will understand why a particular regulation has come up and why it works in such a way. It will lead to mutual learning. And it could also, if everything goes well, prevent regulatory divergences because you will prevent a possible misunderstanding or a possible different approach uh, from emerging. And if this regulatory exchange is promising, it might lead to a proposal for a joint examination. So the actual examination of the compatibility of the two systems will kick in. And here there are three methodologies mentioned by the EU. As previously mentioned, the idea of mutual recognition that has been developed in the EU but has been taken up by the WTO and is present in the WTO agreement, which basically allow for striking a balance between regulatory divergence but at the same time, aiming at regulatory convergence. How? Each party will keep its own standards, but will accept the substantive outcome of the others. Mutual recognition is not only about substantive under standards, but it can also be about procedures. So we might also have conformity assessment bodies, as we have done previously in the bilateral mutual recognition agreements. We can also aim for simplification. We can also aim for all kinds of possible agreements that will facilitate and will uh, possibly uh, approximate uh, the two uh, possible approaches. Which are the pros of this regulatory uh, chapter? What I really like of this proposal is that it establishes something we don't have now. Every single time the policymakers across the Atlantic meet, they do it on an ad hoc basis. Now they're going to do it on a permanent basis without any obligation to agree. Unlike what, public, unlike what civil society groups would say or would argue. There's no agreement to actually uh, sit There's no, uh, around the table. There's no agreement to come up with an agreement, but it is a bridge that is uh, established. It is possible to lead convergence without having this predetermined outcome. And uh, what I develop in a new article that is forthcoming with Jonathan Wiener, the benefits of this permanent mechanism is also to push for having two jurisdictions developing their own standards and learning from variation. In other words, the regulatory cooperation chapter, as it has been put on the table, does not promote harmonization as such. It's not about standardizing everything, but it's about keeping uh, their own administrative and regulatory diversity while leading to approximation through a permanent dialogue. How this discipline would be translated institutionally this is the possible institutional design, possibility of having a joint ministerial body, as it is often the case in trade agreements, a regulatory cooperation body with the trade representatives, and then the sectors by sector policymakers, not trade negotiators, discussing uh, about the merits of the single uh, regulatory standards existing or about to come to existence in the two jurisdictions.
Which are the possible cons? Which are the question mark? Well, the question mark is who is going to sit in those committees? Who is going to be represented there? Are we thinking about officials, meaning the officials coming from the different agencies, or there will be also multi-stakeholder platforms allowing civil society groups, industry groups to be part of the conversation when it comes to judging the equivalence or the mutual recognition of these different standards. Because obviously there is a technical issue of methodology that has to be developed, but also an issue of legitimacy of the promise. And then there's a broader question, which leads us to the issue of implementation. Uh, what is going to happen once an agreement has been struck, meaning we know that the compatibility between the two standards has been reached, how this will be transformed in legal terms into the US legal system and into the European legal system. How we are going to cooperate for this? And here is a question mark. Why is a question mark? Because implementation, by definition, is an issue that is left to each jurisdiction. So it will be US law, it will be European law, determining how this agreement should possibly be incorporated into their own uh, legal system. And the questions might be, Will be there a role for, for the US Congress? Will there be a role for the Parliament and the Council, our co-legislators? There will be a role for, for the public. These are questions which, which remain open and which are left pretty much to the two jurisdictions. So let me wrap up with a final conclusion on which might be the democratic consequences or the democratic questions surrounding uh, the agreement, and notably the regulatory cooperation chapter, which could be the answer to the race to the bottom argument that civil society organizations keep raising as um, in order to possible question uh, the legitimacy of this uh, negotiation. In my view, on the basis of what I've been describing to you, regulatory autonomy in the US and in the European Union would be preserved by a regulatory chapter framed in such a way. The parties would only bind, they would only enter into a binding agreement if they accept and if they grow through the regulatory exchange mechanism, and this will lead then through a joint examination to a, a political agreement that would then be transformed into a legal agreement. So regulatory autonomy is preserved. The signature of TP would not lead to a different result. But there is a concern. The concern is that every single time the policymaker, they're going to sit and discussing about the regulatory compatibility of their systems, they will somehow reopen a political process that has already been decided when deciding that particular US or European regulatory approach. So inevitably, there is a reopening of the decision-making process. Deciding about the equivalence, deciding about the mutual recognition, make the regulators to rethink a decision that has already been taken. Who should take the decision? Only the policymakers, meaning the agencies or should there be an involvement and democratic uh, control systems or mechanisms allowing for some uh, control. It is pretty clear that there is a demand for more participation, for more inclusiveness in both uh, the, uh, let's say, the regulatory exchange part when the equivalence or the mutual recognition is discussed, but also at the level of implementation. But as I said here is up to the two parties to decide how to ensure the implementation. So my concluding uh, remark to wrap up my message to you is that TTIP, notably the regulatory cooperation chapter, is not set to diminish regulatory autonomy. This would be uh, fully preserved. But inevitably, the nature of an agreement of a different sort, the format of such an agreement, and the degree of regulatory cooperation might require a new balancing between democratic control and effectiveness, which is clearly different than previous trade agreement. This is somehow unquestionable. This is, our, this is a dimension which is pretty uh, unknown uh, to uh, trade negotiators and to, to the world of trade. I'm going to conclude here, but I will be happy to take some further uh, remarks and questions. Thank you. All right. Um, thank you very much, Alberto. Um, I'm going to go a little Gaia on you here today. Um, you know, today it's been a lot about uh, conflict and how uh, the difficulties involved in negotiating TTIP. And um, the point that I will make today is that as we go into this, these deep integration negotiations, 
that will require a different approach. That will require trade negotiators and trade negotiations to evolve from what I would call a historically macho approach to more of a feminist community of interest approach. And that is something that I believe hasn't been recognized sufficiently uh, yet. Um, I should say also that what I'm going to present today is not something very specific, but as Simon mentioned, the National Board of Trade in Sweden has done a lot of work on regulatory cooperation. Uh, someone referred to this publication as the Bible in this area, actually, today. Regulatory cooperation, technical barriers to trade within the transatlantic trade investment partnership. So that is for download at, on our website. We will also publish very soon um, a new report that discusses uh, standards specifically and how we can cut what, what I call the Gordian knot of the structural differences between the EU and the US in this regard. Uh, maybe I can tell you something about that later. But bear with me now, because I would take you on this journey, which is basically a, a political, economy, political economy journey, where we um, where discuss the foundation of interests and trade negotiations and end up discussing uh, the topic of, of this session. So, we have a, a divide on regulatory cooperation in TTIP. And um, like I said, in order to, uh, I wrote a report on this that is called Global Value Chains and Trade Negotiations. And the idea here was that we have seen over the past 20 years uh, a, a big changes in how trade works and the nature of trade. And in particular, we've seen the emergence of global value chains. That has inevit inevitably changed also the political economy of trade negotiations. However, there's been very little analysis in the past few years that has analyzed this particular aspect. So this is our contribution, we think, uh, to the literature and to the understanding of how we can conduct these type of, of negotiations. Uh, so we, we revisit the political economy of trade negotiations. Um, we argue that the changing nature of trade has affected stakeholder interests, uh, the issues at hand. We're talking here about totally different issues than we would have perhaps 20, 20 years ago. Um, but also, in, in fact, the underlying problems that we want to solve. And this requires new approaches. Ultimately, we want to make trade negotiations work better, and also actually explore what we can do differently. Well, back to basics. Uh, this is a quote by um, none other than Paul Krugman. The economist's case for free trade is essentially a unilateral case. A country serves its own interests by pursuing free trade regardless of what other countries may do. Or as Frederick Bastiat put it, it makes no more sense to be protectionist because other countries have tariffs than it would to block up our harbors because other countries have rocky coasts. This, I guess, is an adequate and uh, good quote here at Cato. It's the case for unilateral trade liberalization. However, as we all know, uh, it's, it's been historically very difficult to achieve trade liberalization through this route. And that's why we ha have and why we introduce trade negotiations. Um, the political economy problem is that import competing interests are more concentrated and better organized. And by introducing negotiations, export interests are mobilized to counterbalance the import competing interests. So ultimately, trade negotiations have a domestic political purpose, right? It's a Faustian bargain, Faustian mercantilist bargain from the beginning. And uh, it has worked really well over the past uh, half century or so. But increasingly, it is not, uh, it's, it's uh, working less and less well. So why has it been so difficult in recent years to achieve results in trade negotiations? After all, we all agree that trade is a positive sum game, right? That is something that we learn in textbooks in Economics 101. And I sometimes take the interesting comparison between the Iran nuclear negotiations, that in my mind is the closest thing that we get to a zero-sum game in international relations. And yet, that was possible to achieve, whereas we're still standing, doing, uh, achieving nothing on the Doha round, and we're debating here if we even can get TTIP uh, uh, achieved or if we can ratify the TPP in Congress. Um, that, to me, is almost incomprehensible, that uh, 
it should really be the other way around, that it's much more easy to negotiate uh, trade than uh, something like the Iran nuclear agreement. Um, well, one, one thing that a lot of authors actually mention that is a problem here is that we have a reduced interest in recent years from the private sector stakeholders. And here is a quote by Matu at the World Bank and Subramanian, who is now with the Indian government, I believe, uh, that illustrates this. And we came across more uh, of these types of comments when we wrote the report. And of course, if there is a, a private sector interest deficit, this is a fundamental problem if trade negotiations rely on the idea that export interests are there to counterbalance the import competing interests. So we have a, a pretty substantial problem in that case. So what about the effect then on the fragmentation of production and trade, i.e. global value chains? We analytically divided that into two different effects, uh, what I call the direct effect on trade stakeholder interests and an indirect effect through a shift in the trade policy agenda from market access issues to behind-the-border negotiations. Here is the analysis of the direct effect. We argue that a fragmentation of interest uh, leads to a fragmentation, sorry, a fragmentation of production leads to fragmentation of interest. And this affects both the export interests and the import competing interests. So the effect is uh, what I would call um, ambiguous. It could go either way depending on the sector, the type of uh, negotiation, and the interest at stake. But the other um, effect here that we see is, is stronger in my mind. And firms that depend on imports for their production join exporters in support of trade liberalization and this creates a broader base for open market interests. And as I mentioned, we think that this effect dominates uh, the other one. So basically, we see that the traditional way of negotiating uh, market access issues should be able to work in the future too. In other words, reciprocity and, and the exchange of concessions uh, of market access should, should be able to, to work. I should also point out that the second effect here, uh, the broader base effect, as I call it, that also makes unilateral liberalization more uh, easily achieved. Because unilateral liberalization, of course, never depends on export interests. So um, if we have uh, uh, importers also joining uh, into this domestic political uh, uh, fight, then, then I guess that uh, unilateral liberalization would be more easily achieved. Another actor that we talk about today are, of course, the multinational enterprises. Uh, they are the drivers of DVCs, and they shape, to a large extent, also uh, the way the global economy works today. They, as a result of global value chains, they produce and sell more abroad through their subsidiaries. And we came out with the conclusion that they, their interests today are increasingly about strategic issues such as capital control, um, IPR, uh, the management of the value chains and so forth, rather than market access. There are exceptions to this. Uh, we notice in our own, own stakeholder contacts with, for example, Ericsson, a Swedish multinational company, that they are very much interested in, in um, market access issues too, as are Siemens, for example. But on balance, we, we saw a change here, how multinational enterprises act. And this also could, of course, explain why we've seen a reduced interest at the global level for um, trade negotiations. I think we heard someone say today that small and medium-sized enterprises actually are the ones who run the, the daily business, so to speak, of, of global value chains. They're the ones who run and... Uh, uh, the cross-border trade, if you will. So what about the indirect GVC effect? Well, the argument here that you might have heard is that GVCs have changed the trade policy agenda from shallow to deep integration, and the mechanism for this is an evolution in the main role of the trading system from selling to producing. And this causes private sector interest to shift from market access issues to behind-the-border issues. And as stakeholder interest and shift, the trade policy agenda shifts with it. And in the end, this also creates um, a 
transformation uh, where, and since the behind the border agenda is blocked at the WTO, um, this agenda shifts to regional trade uh, negotiations. This is uh, something that has been described, for example, by Richard Baldwin and others. So this is nothing new, but um, it's an important process. Uh, but why does all this matter? Well, it's because behind the border negotiations are different from a political economy perspective. There are fewer clear-cut market access bargains between offensive interests. It's impossible to trade my consumer protection for your environmental protection, for example. We also say that distrustism is a more important problem than protectionism in this area. I'm not saying that there is no protectionism for behind-the-border issues. There clearly is. We have market protectionism all over. But the main problem, and we have discussed this before today, I think, is really that we don't trust our counterpart system to be equivalent of our own, despite the fact that they might be, uh, in effect, equivalent from the outset. Also, it differs uh, in who the, the actors are. Opponents of behind-the-border negotiations could be actually the exporting interests that we said before were pushing for market access. Uh, they sometimes have um, invested in a different regulatory environment that they perceived benefit them, um, that benefit their interests and uh, how they um, uh, conduct their business. Uh, it gives them the competitive edge. NGOs, we mentioned, they are more aggressively um, against negotiations for services, for um, investment, for most regulatory issues. And even regulators themselves uh, are sometimes opposed to uh, behind-the-board negotiations. They also have vested interests here. They even share in rent sometimes. If the standard-setting organizations are private, uh, then that might, might make, create an incentive for them to oppose uh, negotiations for regulatory issues or behind-the-border negotiations. Well, what are the general conclusions from this? We argue that reciprocity is still an effective instrument for market access liberalization. So what I call the, the March approach to trade negotiations should still work for market access. However, YAT-style negotiations do not necessarily work for deep integration issues. Here, approaches based on a community of interest are more likely to be effective, and that is something that we must keep in mind. Trust and confidence building becomes increasingly important in this, in this area, and we also argue that it makes sense, actually, to separate market access negotiations from behind-the-border negotiations. This is somewhat controversial, because some people say that we should apply a supply chain approach to negotiations instead, which makes sense from a firm perspective, because that's how a firm conducts its business. But if the political economy context is so different in the two arenas, then actually it makes more sense to separate them and to apply different approaches. Here. Yeah. Um, well, what about the implications for TTIP regulatory cooperation? We, again, build negotiations on a community of interest rather than on extracting concessions. Less macho approach, more Gaia, if you will. Build trust in your counterpart's regulatory system. Uh, if you bash your counterpart system, then you will actually add to the problems because it will reduce the trust from the public in the way, for example, uh, the US regulatory system treats uh, emissions or something, uh, auto emissions. Um, also, it's important that regulators are engaged in the negotiations from the outset, that we establish uh, sister agencies that see each other as um, mirror images and that communicate well. I think that's something that Alberto also talked about and also build greater support for basic approaches such as least trade restrictive or least costly regulation. And in the end, develop, of course, a culture of transparency and reassurance in relation to private sector stakeholders and NGOs and the general public. Well, I guess the basic point of my presentation is, again, to treat market access differently 
from a political economy perspective than uh, deep integration issues and behind the border negotiations. But also, the conclusion is this. It's Albert Einstein who once said that the definition of madness is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. This might more be more applicable in, at the WTO, but I would say that this is something that we should keep in mind. Do things a little differently, try other approaches, and we might be more successful. That is the message that I leave you with. Thank you. questions and I'll, I'll go to the audience. So my first question, I think this is, is for both of you. So I mean, we're kind of diving into the, the you know, very deep the details of regulatory coherence, but let me you know, get back to the TTIP for a second and ask you both this question. Um, what, what should we do with regulation in, in the TTIP? Are we, are we better off? Is it too complicated to include it in trade talks? Should we pull it out entirely and just create a separate arrangement, you know, just on regulation? Or should we keep it in trade agreements but put it on a separate track? because it's gonna take longer, you know, we start small, we build on it, or should it be a core feature? And no TTIP without a, a substantial um, set of provisions on regulation. So those kind of three general options or any others you wanna propose, uh, just, you know, either of you have an opinion on how we should approach it. Well, you can start. Go ahead, and okay. then I'll, yeah. Given the aim, given the declared aim of, of, of the TP negotiations, I think it would be difficult not to uh, uh, dedicate a, a, a chapter to, to, to regulatory cooperation because the whole idea is to tackle a particular set of provisions, a particular set of regulatory measures that they seem to be the major problem for uh, rendering trade smoother in the relationship between the US and the EU. But of course the burden of proof lies on both sides who have to prove that what they're agreeing upon bring added value and therefore is a WTO plus obligation as compared to what is already written in the TBT and SPS. And I infer from your question, Simon, that you seem skeptical about identifying a real added value in the commitments that I mentioned as regulatory practices. I'll just jump in. I'm not actually skeptical. I just, I, I want to hear somebody's ideas for how it would work. I, I mean, I'd love, to, I'd love to see it work. I'm just not mm -hmm. sure. But so, go ahead. Mm -hmm. so, so, I think the, the, the idea that is uh, currently contained in this European proposal on regulatory practices is to somehow promote a privileged relationship uh, when it comes to the way in which both sides subject their regulatory process to a set of procedures that can be somehow comparable, that they somehow share common methodologies so that they're going to be opening up the decision-making process, and this carries all the virtues that were mentioned by Pear earlier on. Well, I mean, so would you demand that, you know, no, don't sign a TTIP until you've made substantial progress on regulation, or would you be okay with, well, you know, we've got some core principles here, and we'll keep working on them later? That, that's an excellent question. As far as I understand, the real game that is, is, it has been playing over the last two years is to find a balance between uh, these two elements. We, we need an agreement on some sectors, which are possibly the low-hanging fruits, areas where the regulatory approaches are quite similar, so the conditions are easily met for an agreement on those sectors, but at the same time, also finding an agreement at the horizontal level, so finding and creating the conditions, the preconditions for establishing a permanent platform for allowing future agreements, and this is the idea of living agreement. So I consider both components absolutely uh, inherent to, to the nature of, of the agreement, and it would be difficult to have only the horizontal part and only the sectoral part. We need a bit of both. Yes, I also really like the idea of a living agreement, and the reason is that, again, going back to the different uh, types of uh, political economy background here. Uh, if the problem is distrustism, if the problem is that we don't trust each other, then re that requires time and uh, perhaps a few good examples. And then if we are able to agree on, for example, I think we do need sectors, for example, by the way, we have not talked about that, but uh, it's obvious that we need some sectors that uh, can make way, for example, in auto and uh, electrical machinery, for example. Um, and if we can show those results and then close the agreement, then we can move on with a living agreement and use them as examples of what went right and as good examples, basically. So I, I like the idea of a living agreement. 
One more question, and then I'll go to the audience. So to me, it feels a bit like it's 1947, and we're sitting here drafting the GATT, and you know, we're, we, we've got this, we're creating this institution, we don't know what it's going to look like, and because we, you know, we just haven't mapped, mapped this out yet. So let me ask what I think is kind of a foundational question of, and Alberto, you had a slide there where it seemed like you had a regulatory cooperation body at the top, and then all these uh, specific sort of sector bodies beneath it. And I'm just wondering how each of you see, you know, the possibilities here. Um, is there a fear that if you create this, you know, broad organization that deals with, that sort of encompasses all the sectors, that it looks too much, much like world government for some people? And maybe would it be better to just have little sector, sectoral bodies that weren't quite so scary for everybody? Hmm. What do you think of that? Either one of you. Okay, I can start now. Well, yes, I think that's a good idea. I mean... Building step by step, I think, is a way to build confidence and trust in the new project. And if it is scary to many people, then that's a better approach. And the way you actually presented it, it looked a little bit like world governance when, when you see it all mapped out on a, on a slide like that. So better in a, a, an incremental step by step approach, I think. Well, I agree, Simon, that it might be quite pioneering what the U.S. and, and European negotiators are going through. Uh, but at the same time, they can afford relying, and they actually are supposed to rely on the WTO. So they have to build on this, on this common ground, and they cannot depart from them. So Article 24 remains uh, the constraint for what uh, they are actually doing. But they are certainly building up on this key, and they have to go further. In terms of institutional design, I, I have to apologize because I probably conveyed the wrong idea. Uh, what I show you is quite speculative in nature. We, we, we certainly know that there will be uh, this high-level uh, body that will be somehow supervising uh, these sectoral meetings, meeting, not necessarily institutions. We're not going to create a transatlantic FDA, a transatlantic EPA, a transatlantic USDA. No, this is not the project. The project is to allow the regulators on a permanent basis to meet each other if need will be. So the regulatory exchanges will be prompt the regulators uh, who will be meeting each other, but we won't be establishing an entire apparatus with dedicated transatlantic officials working for TTIP. So apologies for having conveyed this idea, which is absolutely far from what is on the table, as far as I know. Yeah, it's just that perceptions matter here, and it's such a sensitive issue. And you know, I can imagine people looking at this and thinking, that's a scary world government coming to, I don't know, take away our baby rattles or whatever. Uh, let me turn it over to the audience now. Anyone uh, with questions? Uh, in the back there, the guy who just raised his hand. <laughs> I'm Josh Penrod from the Plasma Protein Therapeutics Association, and we represent manufacturers of biological therapies for people with rare disease. So you can imagine our very, very keen interest um, in, in talking about regulatory convergence between the EU and the U.S. All of our global members are either headquartered in the U.S. with substantial European operations or headquartered in Europe with substantial U.S. operations. So... Um, at least to my mind, our sector, however concentrated and small, um, sort of exemplifies the need for some type of, of TTIP agreement. Uh, so we've been following this um, with certain avidity over the past year or so um, and have been suffering through, I guess, different levels of disinformation or, not, or misinformation probably more than, more than disinformation. And we're just trying to ascertain what exactly it is that, that TTIP means. And I wanted to thank the presenters here for um, offering some cogent insight into um, the process and, and possibly some directions that regulatory convergence may take. I would, I would caution, though, with, with perhaps a couple of, of prefatory comments before I actually get into my question, which is this, I don't know how the meme started of European regulations always being more difficult to reach than, than U.S. ones. Um, I do think that there are certain different social issues that take precedence in the political sphere of each jurisdiction. Um, you know, we've seen a sweep through the U.S. of um, the attainment of, of homosexuals to have uh, legalized marriage, uh, legally recognized marriage in, 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 uh, throughout the country. Um, 
And that's just an example of some social change that you see in, in different countries at different times. And so I think that, that there are a number of different political and legal issues that come to the fore in various countries, um, depending on the particular zeitgeist of the time. And so this sort of leads me around to the, the question of, of uh, particularly to, to Professor Alemanio, um, that it is my understanding, I'm not a European lawyer, um, but it is my understanding that, for example, in the health and safety fields, European member states can um, create their own legal frameworks and systems um, that so long as they exceed the minimum requirements of European law, um, they are absolutely free to have something that is more difficult, quote, unquote, to reach or say more stringent, more protective, however um, that particular argument wants to be sold. So in in my sector, we are faced not by supranational European inspectors, for example, but by um, national inspectorates that are charged by the European supranational body and in this the European Medicines Agency with doing inspections of, of US facilities. And so what we see is we don't only not not only necessarily see a, a disharmony or in inconsistency uh, between US and European requirements, but we also see um, disharmony and inconsistency with European requirements as applied by different member states uh, performing inspections. And so um, this is a part of of, of the the um, inspection regime that that Europe uses, and certainly there are disharmonies that are readily apparent um, within the FDA and uh, the regulatory authorities in the U.S. as well. So I don't want to underplay those. But um, what I what I do want to say is is that you know whenever we're talking about these important issues, the devil is in the details. The details are all that matters. So. Speaking in in broad brushstrokes about you know how how a certain system would work in our sector you know the FDA our relevant offices within the FDA meet with their European counterparts already regularly several times per year to discuss regulatory policy and as a result oftentimes they reach agreement but sometimes they don't and it's not because one is more protectionist or, or anything like that it's because there's disputed science. Um, they review the science with a certain level of, of, of interest and, and critique, and they just draw different conclusions for what makes the best policy based on their understanding of the science as presented. So um, I'm not sure there's a question in there. It's, it's relatively circuitous, but the, the idea that I'm trying to get across and trying to impart is that whenever we are talking about these things with the industry, any industry that has to deal with them, um, it can be extremely complicated and um, any system that has to be brought forward or, or should be brought forward has to grapple with these these extremely technical, very, very difficult issues. Did you have anything you wanted to respond? Yeah, very okay. quickly. Thanks a lot for, for your comments. I, I, I think I can, I can follow them. Uh, the gap that you denounce between the law in the books and the law in action, uh, I think, is something that occurs in, in both jurisdictions. But, of course, the EU is not a federal state, uh, not yet. So many of the difficulties you might have encountered in Europe uh, stem from the fact that the EU does a pretty good job in establishing European-wide substantive regime like pharma or food or medical devices and cosmetics. But then when it comes to the implementation of those regulations, we do not necessarily have dedicated federal uh, agencies. They are in charge of that. The implementation and the, uh, partly the first application of most of these uh, decisions takes place throughout the territory by national uh, uh, or institutions. And this, of course, might render also internally, might create uh, certain difficulties. However, over time, we see uh, overall improvement uh, of the EU in supervising the way in which the implementation of different regulatory regimes uh, take, take place. Let me just add, I think it's, it's great to have somebody from, you know, an industry here just to, to illustrate for us how complex this can be. Uh, you know, it's easy enough to pick out examples like baby rattles or crash tests, say, oh, you know, why is this so hard? A lot of times, I mean, the, you know, the, the, the particular product or service is, you know, is, is more complicated than a baby rattle or even a car. And it's just, yeah, I, I think, and you know, I've said before, we should keep pushing with this, but, you know, I just, I don't know how far we'll get. And I'd be satisfied with, I think, maybe less than some others would. If anything were accomplished, I'd, I'd be happy, so... Um, any other uh, questions? Uh, Michelle? 
Michelle Egan, the Wilson Center. I have just three questions. I'm going to take uh, Simon's category. How would both of you measure success? Would it be removing regulatory protectionism? Would it be regulatory convergence? Or would it be simply, okay, let's all have the US regulatory procedures, notice, rule, and comment, and APA? How would you actually measure success? My second question would be, um, we're assuming, based on the question above and the comment, that when we're doing this convergence or removal of non-tariff measures, that what we're doing is a public good. But when we look at conformity assessment, testing, accreditation, and everything else, this is big business. This is not just public goods. This is private market interests here. So asking them to give up market share is quite difficult. The third question would be, you're talking um, um, about this lovely institutional design uh, for regulatory cooperation, but it's about regulations in the future, upstream reg upstream regulatory cooperation. What about issues that are different fundamentally between the US and the EU? Product liability, torts, damages, market surveillance. We have very different legal systems and approaches to these things across both sides of the Atlantic. Surely that for business matters as well. Thank you. A lot of questions there. Any, either of you want to take up any of those? All right, I'll start with the first and say that I think that regulatory convergence is the measure of success. I think, like Alberto said, that protectionism, yes, but we already have those rules in the TPT agreement. So um, hopefully that will be reduced as well. But the measure of success to me is convergence. Uh, this, of course, are for the horizontal provisions. I also think that. Uh, MRAs and um, some rules of equivalence for sectoral issues, such as, for example, medical devices. I think that's a sector where we could actually uh, achieve some, some results and progress. I am more optimistic there than in certain other sectors. Um, and then let's see, what was the third question? Um, Product liability and tort systems, different those three. Well, I'll give that to you. Okay, <laughs> okay. thank you. Uh, let, me, let me start then from the reverse order. Uh, well, what I try to portray and what it stems from the um, proposal by the EU uh, does not necessarily cover only regulation in the future. It also covers the existing regulation. So let's imagine there is a revision of the Tobacco Products Directive, what happened uh, two years ago. Well, at the same time, the FDA was doing exactly the same, was looking back uh, uh, with, with, the, with the, the tobacco uh, control in the US. And you can imagine the regulators, while thinking about what to do about electronic cigarettes, Discussing about the science, discussing about the different policy options available on the market, should we put disclaimers, should we regulate them as consumer products, should we regulate them as medical devices? So these are the kind of questions they should start asking together. And this, I think, is a huge learning, uh, in learning experience that, that they might have. They've been doing this informally, now they would do it on a permanent basis with the idea of possibly uh, go to a possible convergence on how they actually uh, do that. But of course, I agree with you, there are certain areas where uh, the overall approaches seem to be so far away. We can stay on uh, products and think about chemicals where we have uh, a very peculiar, uh, very advanced, uh, very ambitious and demanding uh, rich system in the US, which basically put the burden on the industry to gather all possible evidence before placing into the market a chemical substance. And we have TASCA in the US, which works in, in, in exactly the other way. And that's why overall the chemical substances spread in the market here are a bit less known than, than, than in the US. This is an area where, of course, the conditions are not necessarily met to start from day on discussing about this issue. The second question about conformity assessment, big business, I cannot but agree. It is pretty clear that in this particular area, what TTIP might achieve will reduce uh, certain marketing op market opportunities for, for certain uh, certifiers and um, accreditators' bodies. But it will be a reshifting. There would be a, a, a readaptation because at the end of the day, the idea is to possibly promote uh, convergence also in the way in which these actors uh, work. And in terms of how to measure success, I think we should not only focus on protectionism. This is already the job of the WTO, so we have to be a bit more ambitious. But certainly, if you're going to be able, through regulatory cooperation, to prevent some divergence from emerging, then also this box would be teak. We should certainly focus on regulatory convergence. I agree with, with Per. If you're going to be able to come up with 
uh, more and more regulatory systems which are pre-existing, but they can talk one to another. An example may be cosmetics, where our regulatory regime are not so different, and we could establish that one a cosmetic is legally placed in the US market, could be automatically placed in the European market, this would be a good win. It would be a good measure of success for, for many sectors. Of course, this is a bit of an easy uh, example that I'm, I'm giving to you. And in terms of procedures, well, we do not necessarily have to measure success because there has been cross-fertilization, meaning uh, the Europeans following a particular procedures and the Americans another. But certainly, if you're going to be able to do and to go through and to survive this beauty context and taking the best out of the possible procedures in order to achieve our goal, which is to opening up a bit the process, ensuring that all interests will be represented in the same way without, uh, without necessarily uh, institutionalizing this uh, um, well-proven and empirically proven disbalance existing in the representation of interest, that would be win-win. So I, I would say that I would measure success by looking at the three uh, categories uh, given and offered by, by Simon. I'm just going to weigh in quickly with an opinion on the third question, sort of, you know, what do we do about different, what, what should we do, if anything, about different product liability or tort systems? To me, there's just, I'm not sure there's a right or wrong there. I mean, I feel like I've heard, and this might not be true, but for example, on, on ski slopes, if you go skiing in Europe, you know, you're pretty much on your own, and if you get hurt, it's your fault. Whereas in, you know, America, we worry about, we have all these signs, and, you know, the companies are, are held to, uh, you know, high standard of liability. I just, I mean, either system seems fine. It'd just be cultural preferences. I, I wouldn't really try to do much about that. You know, we can see if a particular uh, you know, society has a great system, then, you know, more people will go move there, and we'll, we'll know that's a better system. But I, I would let that go. Uh, I think we have time for one more question and uh, in the middle there. Thank you. Yeah, my name is Lee Yang. Uh, I think when we heard a lot, a lot of uh, trade agreements, and uh, it's really too, too much for people to understand, and I don't think any, anybody do the trade would be able to understand it. Maybe they would have to say, go to find a lawyer. And then when you find a lawyer, they don't understand it. They don't really follow the, the law. So they just get the legal fee. So I just don't think it's, it's easy for people to conduct a fair trade, except they just lost a, a lot of money. And uh, I just want to know, Exactly. How do you follow up the accountability, and how do you measure the real reliability? And now, in the government, you know, you have a legislation, maybe thousands of pages, like Patriot Act, nobody read it, and so it's meaningless except it's adverse impact on our society. And you have a lot of coal fire. It's only the means the copy of several several copy for different clients and different attorneys. But this means that the court didn't really process in the due process manner except just abuse of power to give the taxpayers money to benefit a few interest group. So I just wonder if you can really say put the one agreement maybe in the previous experience, one good model and use it as an example so people can follow up, so you can hire employee, employee to follow up, so anybody will take the position should be able to do the job, rather than say, I don't know, you just have to be as, listen to the order of the lawyer. So I just wonder if you will be able to say, if anything come up, any number come up, you will be able to audit it, whether it's real number or there's abuse and there's corruptions. I think if I, if I could respond to that, I think I could sum up, and I think everyone would agree that all trade negotiations are, are a great big boondoggle for lawyers. And uh, so um, I don't know if you have anything else you want to add to that. But I think, yes, they're very complicated, and uh, it works out very well for all of us because that's what we spend our time on and we enjoy it. I don't know if you have anything further to add. But with that, let me wrap it up. Uh, it's now uh, 5.30, and let's give a round of applause to the panel, and there will be a reception out in the Winter Garden.